Hey guys, welcome back to The Mean, and welcome back to Nick Seagraves. Hey Nick, did you survive? I did. Where did, what, what happened? Tell me about the last two weeks of your life in about 10 seconds. Yeah, um, checks from my company bouncing. Oops. Sorry, um, my intelligentsia. Feeling like I have no money, then having money again. Um, driving through West Virginia, always fun, mm -hmm. never scary. No. Nope. Siri thought it would be a really funny joke. Um, we go way back. And mm -hmm. she was like, hey, why don't you drive on this one-way road that cars go both ways on through the deep woods of Appalachia in West Virginia for 30 minutes. Sounds like, like a good time. Yeah. I was like, whatever, Siri. But you successfully survived a trip from Chicago to Richmond, Virginia? Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations on that. Uh, are, how do you feel? Do you feel like when you drive back across the Mason Dixon line, do you feel like the patina of the South welcoming you home? Kind of. I mean, I like stopped to get gas and there were Southern accents and I was like, oh. You were like, oh, my Lord, yes, no. Yeah. I mean, I was actually really excited. Well, that's good. Uh, I'm glad you're in Virginia. It's one of the, you know, the more moderate Southern states. So uh, it's nice for you to be able to survive there. Uh, mm -hmm. Anything else we should know before we start episode 42? You just, uh, you glad to be back back on, on the road again? I'm glad to have my life in order and be able to do stuff like this again, yes. Awesome. So guys, if you haven't done so yet, please uh, rate us on iTunes, listen to us, go to our SoundCloud. We have a Twitter that you guys never tweet at, so being a passive-aggressive mom right now. But anyway, let people know that you listen to The Mean if you like The Mean. Also, Nick's going to be writing for uh, the the Mean presentational website, ARC, arcmag.com, which you can check out if you haven't checked out. Um, Nick, ARC is doing pretty well. We got mm -hmm. uh, 15,000 page views in our first month, which was pretty nice. nice. And, um, we're ready for your piece on fr Frank Ocean, among other things. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are ready to go. But for now, we should actually do a podcast. We're calling this uh, episode 42, Agency. So let's do it. All right, Nick. So when we talk about agency... The first thing that comes to my mind is a little internet combo that I was I was observing on Facebook a few weeks ago, in which there were a lot of sort of center of the road or more progressive evangelical Christians talking about a book they had read when they were teenagers about 20 years ago. And, and some of the people commenting said this book literally ruined their lives. And it's a book called I Kissed D Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris. And the whole premise of the book is that dating is this thing that was invented in American culture. It's not really, quote, biblical. But Joshua Harris was like, I'm going to do it a different way. I'm going to look for my wife a different way because marriage is the purpose, not just dating around, not just sleeping around. And so it became kind of one of these big cultural evangelical things like WWJD bracelets or promise rings or stadium prayer vigils. It became this thing that people read, young people read, and they said, wow, this is a good idea. We should not really date. We should do some other kind of a thing. Um, I didn't really read it. My wife, my she was not my wife then, but my wife read it, and I guess she was somewhat influenced by it. But I 
it, it was never something that really super duper was on my radar because I already had kind of decided that I wasn't going to date around just because of my own personal convictions. I was just going to wait to see the person that I wanted to end up with. That's worked out pretty well so far. After 10 years of marriage, I'm pretty glad that I didn't date a bunch of different people, but I know other people who are glad they dated a bunch of people. So the point isn't whether to date, not to date, to have sex before marriage or not. That's not, that's not actually the conversation. The conversation is there's a bunch of people who read this book and now I guess looking back, they say, wow, that book was way too conservative or it was only one way to think about something or the church was trying to control my body and my sexuality and I should have been more free and I have all this shame. Therefore, reading this book for many people was something that, quote, ruined their lives or made their romantic life harder or made sex a shameful thing for them. That's an interesting claim to me. And... The claim basically boils down to this. There is an input into my life, a, 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 an artifact, a cultural artifact, whether it's a song, a movie, a book, a sermon, something that comes into my life. And this information is something that I trust and I take it in and I follow it. And then it ends up not being something that I'm glad about, something that I look at my experiences and I say, wow, no matter what else was going on, this thing was the thing that made my life worse. So my question to you, Nick, is what about that story resonates with you? What about that story kind of is odd to you? How, do you have any analogs or anything else that's happened to you in your life where you go, oh, yeah, there was, you know, kind of advice that I took or there was a book that I read or is there something that that really was so determinative for me that it kind of looking back, it's responsible for a huge chunk of things in my life rather than me being responsible. Uh, for it yeah i mean to be very fair the identity formation in your adolescence and your childhood is super um dependent oh yeah it's dependent it's open you're like kind of a blank slate and there's definitely something to be said about being influenced by things mm -hmm. um, that aren't your control in your control. I found that artifacts are works of people or whatever you want to call them um, weren't as influential to me as cultures. So growing up in a mega church and thinking, oh, it's just totally normal for this set of things to happen, mm -hmm. and then going to a church that was like the fourth of the size of my youth group mm -hmm. in, in the past church and being like, oh, there's a new set of things that are just mm -hmm. totally normal and this is how we do it. Um, so that was a way. But I, I feel like maybe because it's my personality or the way I was raised in, a, in another respect or something, um, but I've, I've, I always kind of have had a, maybe it's my arrogance. Let me, let me throw myself under the bus. I've always had a like, is that true when I read something? Mm -hmm. So I can't really point to. So you're a saying there thing. might be a difference on a personality level between someone who is more credulous, who just accepts what they're told, and then someone who maybe has kind of an inward sense of, no, I test everything. I don't trust things automatically. You could call it arrogance. You could call it, you know, sort of a, a sense of self over against the outside world kind of a thing, like an internal locus of of, I don't know, epistemology, like knowing things isn't just based on authority kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And also just life situation 
Um, I think if you come from a, maybe not a, like I had a pretty great childhood. So I had the time to develop, I guess, not caring about certain things like that. Well, you, you probably like read books and listened to music and mm -hmm. played video games and really developed a sense of what you liked and what you didn't like and what felt like something was like jived with you and your worldview or yourself or your personality and what didn't. So maybe not everybody has that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, Did you have anything that was that formative for you? Well, I won't deny that there are definitely inputs on your life. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think the most, I don't think it's controversial to say for most people, the most formative thing is your relationship with your parents. Like, if that's not true, then most therapy doesn't make any sense. Um, and then after that, I would say after your relationship with your parents and then your siblings and your extended family and your friends, when you become a preteen teenager, I would say then literature, cultural artifacts, music, movies, then those things start to kind of appear on the list of things that really formed. But yeah, I remember when I was very, very, very young my parents used to basically make sure of two things. One, that we didn't lie. That was like burned into us. Like, don't lie. Not that that's always worked. But like the, the ultimate sin in our household was lying. Even though we weren't a very religious household. And secondly, reading. So I think those things to this day have really, really influenced me. Like I... I'm working on my PhD dissertation in ethics, which is basically like trying to read and write my way to the truth. So I would say those, those inputs in my life were very, very important. Um, but I've also broken off from my parents since my teenage years. My dad's not a Christian at all. And I became one, uh, an evangelical when I was a teenager. And, you know, I've, I've made decisions that I don't think, my whole family would have necessarily thought was a great idea. So I'm not sure if there's anything from my life story that I would say this was absolutely determinative. I mean, it's a, it's a mixed bag, but I would say the things that are at the top of the list are, are relationships and things that were impressed upon me by people rather than reading this book or watching this movie. And, and I guess to be fair, a lot of cultural artifacts influence you in ways that are less obvious. So mm -hmm. I can't tell you what my childhood obsession with Star Wars has done to me. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure. Maybe I am more likely to look at things as good versus evil or I'm not, you know, so. It's more likely of, to try incest just for yeah, fun. Yeah, just to yeah. see. Um, so, the, yeah, that, it's a good question. Like, I am not aware of something that has influenced me. I mean, I guess the Bible, which is a lot of different books written in more than one language over hundreds of years by dozens of people. And, you know, Christians think that God had something to do with it. So I'd say that's the only thing that kind of comes close to being an artifact, a cultural artifact that's really definitely determined many things about my life. But I wanted to bring this conversation past just your experience and my experience to talk about the word agency and this idea of things kind of affecting our agency or bypassing our agency or 
marginalizing or relativizing our agency, what, what do we even mean when we talk about this? Like, let's get down to the, to the philosophical nuts and bolts here. When we talk about agency, what are we talking about? Yeah, we're talking about, in ethical terms, responsibility. Okay. Um, we are talking about, are you responsible for a belief or something? In, um, in pure terms, I'd say agency is most easily understood as something that's like, oh, um, were you an active agent in this process? So if I would say something like, if I was forced as a young man to shave my head every single day because my mom really loved it, mm-hmm. and she cut off two of my fingers, and I had to speak Slovakian or something because she just has like a really great parent fetish or whatever, um, I don't really have any, I wouldn't have, I couldn't look back on that and be like, that was really me. Like I, I was the one who did that. It was more, my mom did whatever she wanted. And, um, I was kind of a product of that. Mm-hmm. I would say, does that make sense? Yeah. I would say it's the difference between, well, I'll, I'll give some pop cultural kind of, uh, examples. Someone says, Nick, why did you cheat on your significant other? And you say, well, I was drunk. Mm-hmm. What? Where is agency or lack of agency at work in that in that reply? You're you're saying you weren't in control of your self. You didn't have any control, so you couldn't you couldn't possibly be held, I guess, as responsible as someone who was sober mm-hmm. and cheated on their significant other. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty crappy excuse, though. Well, I think we should do a close reading because mm-hmm. our fans have told us, our our two fans nice. um, have told us that they really enjoy our close readings. So I would like to um, do a close reading on uh, of Blame It from Jamie Foxx. Okay. Blame It on the alcohol. Okay. Uh, you ready? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and which one of his sonnets is this? Uh, this is blame it uh, parentheses on the alcohol parentheses feet T pain. I believe that is featuring T pain. Okay. Close parentheses. So Jamie mm-hmm. Fox, blame it parentheses on the alcohol. Here we go. <clears throat> Agency at work. Blame it on the goose. Got you feeling loose. Blame it on Patron. Got you in the zone. Blame it on the uh, 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 alcohol. Blame it on the, uh, 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 alcohol. First one. A, she say she usually don't, but I know that she front. Cause shouty know what she want. But she don't want to seem like she easy. I ain't saying what you won't do. But you know we probably gonna do. What you been fiending deep inside. Don't lie. Fiending? I guess it's feeling, but fiending okay. is what this right. person wrote. Girl, what you drinking? Gonna let sink in. Here for the weekend. Thinking we can. See what we can be if we press fast forward. Just one more round and you're down, I know it. Fill another cup up. Feeling on your butt what? 
you don't even care now. I, I was unaware how fine you were before my buzz set in, before my buzz set in. Blame it on the goose, got you feeling loose. Blame it on Patron, got you in the zone. Blame it on the uh, 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 alcohol. Blame it on the uh, 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 alcohol. Blame it on the vodka, blame it on the henny. Blame it on the blue top, got you feeling dizzy. Blame it on the uh, 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 alcohol. Blame it on the uh, 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 alcohol. Oh, see, she spilled some drank on me, and now I'm knowing she's tipsy. She put her body on me, and she keeps staring me right in my eyes. No telling what I'm going to do. Baby, I would rather show you what you've been missing in your life when I get inside. Girl, what you drinking? Gonna let sink in. Here for the weekend. Thinking we can. See what we can be if we press fast forward. Just one more round, and you're down. I know it. Fill another cup up, feeling on your butt what? You don't even care now. I was unaware how. Fine. You were before my buzz set in. Before my buzz set in. Blame it on the goose. Got you feeling loose. Blame it on the Patron. Got you in the zone. Blah, 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 blah. Vodka, Henny, Blue Top, Dizzy, alcohol. I just need to read you the T-Pain because I know that's what you were waiting for. Yeah, I really wish I had the text in front of me. <clears throat> Girl, I know you feel good dancing like you look. Couple more shots you open up like a book. I ain't trippin', cause I'ma read ya. Shouty, I ain't trippin', I just wanna please ya. I'ma take a shot of Nouveau, shouty, then you know. It's going down like we can go and kick it like judo. Judo. You know what I mean, shouty got drunk, thought it was all a dream. So I made her say, ah, ah, ah. Now she got her hand on my leg, got my seats all wet in my ride. That's gross. All wet oh, in my ride. Oh, oh. Okay. I don't even want to talk about it. All over my ride, all over my ride. She looked my dead she looked me dead in the eye, I eye. Then my pants got bigger. She already knew what the bigger had her looking her boyfriend like F that word I'm not allowed to say. Well, is he Okay. <clears throat> okay, so blame it on the goose, got you feeling loose, blame it on the trone, got you in the zone, blame it on the mm -hmm. alcohol, blame it on the vodka, blame it on the any, blame it on the blue talk, got you feeling dizzy, blame it on the alcohol, blame it on the alcohol. Now to the ballas popping bottles with their henny in their cups, screaming money ain't a thing. If it ain't, throw it up in the sky, sky, and hold your dranks up high, high. And to my independent mamas who can buy their own bottles, if you looking like a model when them broke fellas holla, tell them to buy, buy, hold your drinks up high, high. You can blame it on the goose, got you feeling loose, blame it on the trone, got you in the zone. Blame it on the alcohol, blame it on the alcohol, blame it on the vodka, blame it on the henny, blame it on the blue top, got you feeling dizzy, blame it. On the album. Close reading, please, Nick. Yeah, wow. Um, it's, why, why did I just subject our audience to that? Well, first of all, it's such a it's a beautiful text, um, <laughs> and I really <clears throat> you can really just see the amount of effort that was put into it. Mm -hmm. um, I would put that up there with Jamie Foxx's performance in Django Unchained. I can't even. I thought that was from Django Unchained. Oh yeah, that's like it's yeah. the club scene. Is that the extra credit at mm -hmm. the end when yeah, you wait? It's the, yeah, mm -hmm. that's what I thought. Um, so that song's actually really interesting because on the surface, it is very look. If you're drunk, it's not you. So like, just go nuts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the but, next layer is what. Yeah, the next layer is, but we know, so do you, maybe you don't have agency when you are drunk, mm -hmm. but you do have agency to get drunk. Exactly. And Kierkegaard, yeah. Kierkegaard mm -hmm. said, 
that sometimes the way that we knowingly ignore the truth, which for him is the definition of sin, is that we delay the truth or we find a way to distract ourselves from the truth. And so Mm -hmm. in doing that, over time, we sin by choosing the wrong thing, even though we know what's right. And getting drunk, I would submit, is one of the ways that we can do that, right? Yeah. And he, the, the, the course itself is that. So when he says you can blame it on the alcohol, he's saying we know we're what we're on this. doing it. We, yeah. we have agency because, mm-hmm. and it, and it brings up that responsibility factor that I brought it again, because the word blame. So there's always, when agency comes on, even with that book that you're talking about, there is definitely an element, or at least I feel so, of agency normally always is sistered with a conversation with blame. Mm-hmm. So who's to blame for my sexual inadequacies? Who's to blame for cheating on my boyfriend? It is either alcohol or it's a purity book. Mm-hmm. Which Yeah, so we know. so so first of all, what that text does is it shows us that this is in the cultural milieu right now, right? Like our culture mm-hmm is having a big discussion in various ways about to what extent can we be blamed for our actions. So whether it's, hey, I did this thing, but all these societal injustices led me to do this thing, or whether it's like, hey, I did this thing, but I was drunk, or like, hey, I did this thing, but I was this impressionable Christian teenager who read this book. It's left, right, and center. It's secular and religious. This is not a niche conversation. This is a universal conversation within our culture that people are having people are having a discussion about what it means to actually be responsible for your own actions now Mm. given that i wanted you to maybe lay out some major philosophical positions for our audience some some classical philosophical positions along the spectrum of almost no agency all the way to radical amounts of agency yeah that makes sense so let's start with like philosophical positions that allow for the least amount of let's say individual agency because we're not going to talk about communal agency at this point because it gets too complex so in terms of you nick walking around what philosopher what philosophy says nick you actually don't have much choice at all and like you're you're not really making choices yeah the overarching uh term it has many forms obviously um but the term for that far to the side of no agency is usually called hard determinism. Mm. Um, it's not hard that in the sense that it's difficult, but because it's very fast and steady. Yeah. Of, um, it's unmoving. So, like I said, it has different forms, but it usually revolves around the fact that any semblance of choice we have is normally the result of... Um, past actions either that be cosmological with like god undetermined predeterminism or what your parents did to you or what your parents did to you in a more Freudian sense or what your culture is doing to you in a more postmodern sense or your gender or whatever or just what Um, the the international systems of labor and capital are doing to you from a marxist i I would say marxism is one of the most deterministic i mean certain forms of marxism are some of the most deterministic because it basically says this literally all boils down to your material state like what what resources you have or don't have Mm -hmm. and their biggest weakness which is what you just brought up is that they tend to be very 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 reductive it's hard to find a hard a hard determinist position that 
is broad. So like we brought up, it's either all about your material gain mm -hmm. and needs, or it's all about your repressed psychosexual fantasies and hatreds of your parents, or it's all about God's book of nature that he wrote a long time ago and your name was in it or something. So, And what are the implications for law, ethics, society if hard determinism... I mean, and the newest hard determinism is neurological. Like, mm -hmm. a, a philosopher professor at my school wrote a book called Did My Neurons Make Me Do It? Um, yeah. And her answer is no, because she's what's called a non-reductive uh, materialist, physicalist, which we can talk about later. But basically, a lot of people like Simon Baron Cohen, who's Sasha Baron Cohen, the comedian's cousin, but he's a famous neuroscientist in Britain and other neuroscientists. I'm not sure exactly where Sam Harris fits on this, but I think he would probably be similar. Um, he is. From my understanding, he's very... Yeah. yeah. So that literally you do the things your neurons tell you to do. And the things your neurons tell you to do are programmed by your genetics and your environment, and that's basically it, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the newest hard determinism. That people don't really have what we have considered to be like a free will or a freedom or decision. We basically just do what we're programmed to do. We're basically a black box or a <clears throat> or an animal. We're basically just an animal that's doing more complex instinctual things. Yeah. It's the newest form of old school like laws of thermodynamic determinism. Mm -hmm. Because even when Newton first wrote that stuff, people were already like, oh my gosh, everything's a cause and effect and like mm -hmm. everything's been determined. But we didn't have the scientific um, knowledge slash jargon. I think really, that, like, that really out. explains why Hume was like, nah, man, I'm going opposite. I'm going oppo with this. Like I'm mm -hmm. completely going to fight everything about this whole determinism thing. Because if you're someone who, who values your identity as a human, which includes choosing things, which it seems like Hume really did. Like, it makes sense that he would tooth and nail fight that kind of Newtonian determinism as people were kind of... I'm not saying Newton believed that, but people took Newton's stuff and ran with it, right? In a deterministic yeah. manner. They did. And the neurological... I mean, neuroscience is a new field, and it, it allows, I guess, a clearer version of that if that makes I would, sense i would say more immediate right if, because instead mm -hmm. of talking about like the big bang and how things developed on the planet it's like no you have these things literally inside your body that are just basically determining what you're going to do and there's no real you yeah so that's exactly. our that's our most deterministic kind of set of views or philosophies um what would be like the what would be the other extreme like the the extreme like let's kind of do the the ping pong thing where we go back and forth back and forth mm -hmm. the other extreme of what is the near opposite of determinism philosophically or who who would represent that on the on the spectrum yeah it would be libertarianism uh not like ron paul no not like ron paul um Definitely not like Ron Paul. Um, but it's it's weird. Okay, so libertarianism is weird. And how how would we best kind of get our hands around libertarianism? Sorry, I was just like, it's weird. Um, 
the it's a radical freedom so libertarians again not ron paul libertarians um tend to view the individual as having i guess if we were going for the most extreme mm -hmm. it would have absolute freedom so they and which also entails absolute responsibility so anything that happens in your life uh to be the most charitable i think the the form that does this is kind of like stoicism or like half stoicism where maybe you're not responsible for what people do to you but you are responsible for how you respond to that so there's always an element of you have the ultimate say in a lot of things if that makes sense say that one more time wrap that up well the stoics it's weird it's not a great analogy because they actually believed in a form of determinism because um, the cause and effect thing isn't like Newton came up with that do to do. Uh, it's been around for a while, but they believe that the mind or the soul has agency always to respond to and react to stimuli. So even if you are the poorest person ever and your dad beat you every day and your mom died when you were, she was giving birth to you or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, you still have the responsibility to um, treat your life as something that you're in control of, treat your life as something that you ultimately have the final say on. So maybe you can't be like, I'm going to be rich, and then you just wake up the next day and you're rich. But you do have the ability to say, how do I feel about being poor? And how and do I want to change that? Like, that's still on your plate. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a form of libertarianism that's like, no, we're really, I guess, like, it would be if we were living in the Matrix, that would be the clearest form of libertarianism, where, like, Neo can be like, I'm going to fly, and as long as I really, really want to, I can. And no one really believes that. In, yeah. Like, so I was just giving probably the most realistic form of... Yeah, and, like, what about, like, a pop cultural form of that, which is, like, hey, like, do what you want, like, kind of go for it. Like you're in control here. Like mm -hmm. the the world is your oyster. Um, I won't go towards the direction of be true to yourself because that's actually kind of deterministic. We can talk about that in a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think I think that there is a real streak in our culture of I can do whatever I want. If I want to go right, I'll go right. If I want to go left, I can go left. If I want to be monogamous I can be if I want to sleep around I can be if I want to do art I can if I want to you know there's all these kind of options and people are told all the time you're free to do this like you've got freedom mm -hmm. you, you can do this you can do that you can do whatever you want so that's on the hard kind of what would we call you called it libertarianism yeah. what what would be the next kind of move towards the center yeah, from the uh, from the determinism side, it depends on who you ask. So this is a very um, controversial area. So some people call compatibilism, which is basically just saying determinism and libertarianism are compatible. So compatibilism, um, they're basically saying, oh, they they call it soft determinism. Um, I've heard that some people really don't like that. 
because it makes it seem like it's still determinism. Mm -hmm. I kind of agree that it is still determinism in a lot of ways. All right, let's break it down a little bit. Mm -hmm. So why is it soft determinism? Why isn't it just straight hard determinism? Yeah, so depending on, once again, terms are everything in philosophy. So if you really have to clear up your terms before you talk. So when I say compatibilism, I am not talking about the idea that some things you don't choose and some things you do. Okay. Like I think everyone who has, isn't a hard determinist can agree with that. You know, like I did not choose to be a man. Yep. I did not choose to be, have curly hair. I didn't do any of that. Um, so I can't turn you into mean, a bird. You, you didn't choose to be human or you didn't choose to be a male or you didn't choose yeah. to be a man because a lot of people would say you did choose to be. Um, I would say no, because my inner gender spirit has okay. told me that I am the right gender. You're a mankin. I'm a mankin. I'm actually a mankin with body dysmorphia as a pigeon. Okay. Okay. So it's very difficult. And I hate that you brought it up right now. And I'm very offended. Tumblr's going to love this. Yeah. Oh, well, who cares? No one goes on there except for porn. So good job, guys. Um, <laughs> I love how the thing at corners of the... It internet gets just dis- just they get destroyed <laughs> just things disintegrate over time it's amazing yeah well it's always been that like it's all, like the first time i ever went on tumblr i'm like oh there's just naked people everywhere i was like oh because it's like why not anyways that's another topic for another day um in my view compatibilism there's a really good analogy that i like to use that shows why i believe it's still kind of a form of determinism Mm-hmm. It is this. So you're sitting down and you're taking a test, Brian. All right. And I say, here's a question, multiple choice, A, B, or C. Okay. And you pick B. Great. Awesome. Cool. You definitely picked that. So there's definitely some form of agency involved. Um, but I'm, as the test maker, created the options that you choose from, yeah. right? And this is fine, and I, and I totally would be on board with that system uh, 100% if it wasn't for that silly, nagging ethical responsibility mm. thing that goes with this. Mm. So if I gave you that test and I was like, well, sorry, the correct answer was D, and you were like, I, that was not an option for me, it would be like, you don't have any agency again. So there's elements of it that kind of go back and forth. And that's why it is the middle ground. So if I had to call myself a compatibilist, I would say, you know, in terms of ethics, you're responsible for what you can choose. Yeah. Which I think, yeah. I think this is um, the finding Nemo over against actual ocean activity. So mm-hmm. real, real fish are determined. They do, they're in water, they're born, they do whatever their neurons tell them to do. Great. Everyone has a great time. But Finding Nemo, choices are made, right? Because they're anthropomorphized fish. In other words, they're they're people fish. Yeah. So they go and they make decisions and they struggle against things and they feel emotions. And they're, the Finding Nemo, they're still fish. They're still caught in, the, in an ocean. They're still limited. So... Finding Nemo is like a, a compatibilist vision of fish, right? Yeah. And that's why 
again, terms are so important. Um, that's why not being a compatibilist, unless you're a very hard determinist, is is kind of impossible because I just there's no way. Well, let's put it this way: most people live their yeah. lives like they're compatible. Yeah. Well, because you know, there's some things you can't control. Like you're either born into wealth or you're not. You're either you know born in the South or you're born in New England. You know, there's things that you have some say in. It's kind of the old uh, phrase of um, you play the cards that you're dealt. You know, so there's that element of choice within determinism. Yeah, and that I can agree with. But well, gambling, because, yeah. gambling is compatibilist because you are dealt certain cards, but then you have to make choices using those cards. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it also brings up a great, um, it brings up, again, I think what I'm really hitting on is that when you bring up agency and not just free will, so having a conversation about free will can be very, like, metaphysical. Like, ooh, is, it, is this a uh, capacity we have as a species or whatever? Mm-hmm. But when you bring up agency, you are always, 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 always talking about responsibility because there's no reason that you wouldn't, you know, that's what an agent is. Mm-hmm. You know, agent Scully is an, is an acting person of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. No, I love agent Scully. Um, Will is working on a life-size bust of her out of concrete. Shut up. So... That's what he's doing right now. So amazing! That's incredible. <laughs> is that my birthday present? <laughs> no, it's it's part of his MFA art exhibit. So let's I don't think those it. two things are mutually exclusive. I think they can be both part of his. If you want to pay the nine hundred dollars to ship a concrete <laughs> bust across the country, yeah. Scully for my wife to kill me. Yeah, um, this, this, that'll this be the goes in our kids' room. Yeah. This goes in our kids' room. That'll be what she uses to finally end it. Um. So we've gone through some hard determinism, gone through libertarianism, more a soft determinism or compatibilism. I wanted to bring it back to kind of the discussion of culture and of holding people accountable and law and ethics. So, I mean, I think C.S. Lewis said it most succinctly that people can only be held responsible for the things they have control over. Mm-hmm. So if people have control over nothing, then it doesn't really make sense to hold them responsible for their actions in any way. Yeah. Um, and if they have control over everything, it makes perfect sense to perfectly hold them accountable for their actions. It all lands on them. But we do know, you and I both believe that no human being is an island. Mm-hmm. Uh, no man is an island. And because of that, we do know that people's parents mess them up and that books that people read influence them and that, uh, you know, people if they get drunk, they might do something that they wouldn't have done sober. You and I have both kind of seen that in our lives. So where does this leave us in terms of actually living in the real world with laws and responsibility and institutions and ethics? Like how do you navigate that as a person in terms of just like when someone does something that you're like, that's wrong or that's a stupid thing to do or, or when a person says to you, this book ruined my life, you know, what do you say? Yeah. Um, I have two things to say. Um, a really great analogy. I was like obsessed with this question for a long time. I think I had like a very allergic reaction to Calvinism when I was younger. And who doesn't? Uh, yeah, you know, it's. I mean, unless you're the worst person ever, you don't love it initially. You have to like grow to like it. It's kind of like whiskey. Um, I like both of those things. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I do too now, but you know, as a 14 year old, um, anyways, but a really, really good analogy about how we treat problems and agency that I like to use is let's say two people are on in lover's lane mm. wherever and a big boulder rolls down the hills of California. This is going in a much different direction than I thought. <laughs> like when you were like, <laughs> let's say two people are in lover's lane. I was like, oh, romance. And then you were like, yeah. they're going to die. Death. Yeah. Well, it's it's important because you need to have a little empathy for them. Yeah. So, you know, they're young. They're cool. He's varsity captain. I didn't know this was a Camus short story. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, this boulder rolls down the hill and oopy doopy lands on their convertible and they die. Okay. Mm-hmm. So... As a community, let's say it was a small knit community in California, which doesn't exist anymore, but let's say it did. Um, how would we respond? You know, most people wouldn't be like, we need to find that boulder and kill it. You know, like it needs to pay for what it did to those kids mm-hmm. because the boulder is, it's not even a fish. It is literally subject to gravity and inertia and all of this stuff. So what we would do probably is, wow, we need to make that area more safe. We need to infect, we need to change the environmental um, kind of properties of this place. We need to put up those stupid rock catching nets or whatever. Mm-hmm. So this doesn't happen again. Now, if those two kids were like making out and someone came up and stabbed them, mm-hmm. then the community would probably be like, we need to find that person mm-hmm. and we need to keep, we need to hold them accountable or at least put them in prison so they're not. doing this again and i think that kind of shows how we should respond to what people are saying they do or do not have agency for um i think it's very difficult to try to judge someone else's else's agency i think this is why trials are so hard yes criminal trials like i've been watching a lot of court stuff lately whether it's Mm -hmm. the real oj simpson case or the fx uh people versus oj simpson or the night of on hbo and like trying to establish intent is nearly impossible yeah. Well, it requires you. That's why it's within reasonable doubt, because there will always be doubt of someone's interior. Yeah, well, even like the Hillary Clinton email thing, like I was watching the this is how sad my life is. I was watching the I was watching the deposition of FBI director James Comey by Trey Gowdy and Jason Chaffetz of the House uh, Oversight Committee. Mm-hmm. And and Trey Gowdy was leading director Comey on this line of questioning. He he says he says to uh, to FBI Director James Comey, uh, Director Comey, I want you to put on your old hat. And by old hat, he means Comey used to be a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And and so Comey knows what he's talking about. And and Gowdy is like a really he'll never be president. He'll probably be in the House of Representatives his his whole life. But Gowdy is like a very talented um, interrogator. He was probably also a prosecutor. So he says to Comey, and they're talking about uh, Hillary's, you know, all the false statements Hillary has made about her email, six, seven, eight different false statements that she's made that we now know are lies about her her email. And, and Gowdy says to Comey, false exculpatory statements are used to prove what? And Comey says, uh, and, and, and Trey Gowdy says again, false exculpatory statements are used to prove what? In other words, he's saying when someone lies about what they did in order to cover it up, what does that, what is that used for in, in a court setting? And Comey says intent. And mm-hmm. Gowdy says exactly. 
And so Gowdy's point is Comey said that no intent could be found that Hillary Clinton intended to serve or um, house state secrets in a private bathroom server <laughs> at her house. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Gowdy goes to the playbook for a prosecutor and says, listen, you and I have both done this a lot. We both prosecuted people and we both know that intent is proved by false exculpatory statements. If you can catch somebody in a bunch of lies that are obviously trying to cover something up, it tells mm-hmm. us what about their state of mind. It's the best indication that we have that that person had some intent because yeah. you wouldn't cover it up if you had no intent. Exactly. I mean, that, that's not a perfect argument, but it's mm-hmm. a strong argument. Yeah, exactly. And it goes to show you why um, legal discourse is so different than philosophical ones yep. because automatically it's like, well, that still doesn't really prove anything about her mm-hmm. intentions. Mm-hmm. And also she's running for president. So I would, lie about everything <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah obviously like there you, are some leaks in this argument but yeah, but it was yeah. a powerful just uh, conversation oh absolutely and and i think what i was going with the, with the boulder analogy has a lot to do with that where it's if and going back to our original case if i kissed dating goodbye if you were the type of person like let's not even judge people who were damaged by this book you know like it may be because of where you were at at that age or your history or your personality, whatever, that book was very damaging to you. Cool. So. And by cool, I mean not cool. Cool. By cool, I mean right. We'll give that to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what is your response? Is that book a boulder or is it an agent itself? So I think where I get frustrated in this problem is People like to displace agency, mm-hmm. but then they don't follow up with it. Yeah, they're, so, not, they're not using the tool consistently as they go mm-hmm. back in time. This yeah. is a very important point that you've brought up before in conversations with me. If your agency is so limited as to be determined, you're a big part of your life, your romantic life, your marriage, your sexuality, is determined by reading a single book, mm-hmm. that means your agency is... I think we could both agree fairly limited. Yes. Right. Well then the author who wrote that book, why could they not make the same case that their agency was similarly limited? Yeah. And it's an infinite chain. Yeah. And then like, they could say, well, my pastor told me this and the pastor could say, well, yeah, I taught him that because I went to the seminary and they said that dating is, is of the devil. Mm-hmm. And then the seminary could be like, well, we read the Bible and the Bible said, so take it up with God. Yeah. And, and, and it's just a chain that goes back and back and either leads to a form of like Greek tragedy of like destiny has just given us all a crappy life and boo-hoo, or it leads to most, and, and most commonly leads to, well, I don't have any agency, but the person or organization before me did. So, which... I think is, you know, like you said, it's hard to prove whether or not someone has agency. So I never really want to question someone when they're like, I didn't really have control over this unless it's obvious that they did. Or if you um, became a prosecutor, you'd have to. And that was my job. I would have, it would be really hard to sleep at night though. Mm-hmm. A lot of doubt. Um, um, of course. Yeah. Um, what was I saying? Oh, but it, it kind of, for me at least, it speaks to this 
the motivation behind this the entire discussion. So, uh, we talked about Kierkegaard before, mm -hmm. um, but there's also modern psychological examples of this, where there's the kind of like group think, um, the bystander effect. These are all things of people trying to displace responsibility, which as we talked about earlier, is agency. Yep. So in our culture, as you brought up, I think a lot of emphasis, at least on the surface level, is how much agency we all have and how much freedom we enjoy. Mm -hmm. But what happens how... when you lift up the corner of the blanket? Yeah, you realize that no one wants it. Like, literally mm -hmm. no one wants it. So they are looking for ways. I mean, that's why people do drugs. Um, so and not blame in... it on the alcohol. Yeah, and not, I mean, drugs in terms of alcohol, cigarettes, cocaine, the whole gambit. It's not mm -hmm. coffee even. Tea. It's not tea. God knows. The things that tea. have been done. Yeah. But it's like you are trying to alleviate some part of yourself, which I don't think is necessarily bad. Listen, but... I mean, who's not looking for a little ego death? Am I right? Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to step outside of yourself for a second. But when you're entire, when people become drug addicts and you're are an alcoholic, and every part of your life is trying to displace yourself, and every part of your existence is that. That's that's the part of our culture that I find the most confusing. Is it preaches a message of you decide what's right for you and you do that. But then when you have made those decisions and therefore have to deal with the responsibility of your actions, you go, well, I was raised in a bad household or I was abused by this person or I read a book. And that's the other thing that's really awful about this. And just to be a little candid, out of everything that can ruin someone's sexual life, is a book really that? I mean, like, I love books and I agree with the power of reading, mm -hmm. but. The pen is, it, is mightier than the sword, Nick. Is it though? Like, <laughs> like, I just being really <laughs> honest. Like, I know ideas are immortal and like mm -hmm. booby doo, whatever, but it's. I have a very hard time. I just have a very hard time believing that a single book can be can do so much damage. To I think to be people. as charitable as we possibly can be, I think what people might mean when they say that book ruined my life or my romantic life, I think they mean that that book is a symbol of a culture in which I was immersed. <laughs> that was that was a powerful determinant in how I was raised to think about marriage, relationships, and sexuality. I think that's probably the sane version of what those people are talking about. Yeah. That that I can agree with to an extent. I still think if I'm laying my cards on the table, on my personal view, a lot of things can happen to you, you know? It's the whole divorced household argument that always comes up of like, oh, well, you know, this person's in prison for kidnapping someone. And not that I know anyone like that, but... um. And but their parents were divorced, so like. But what if their look, parents look what were divorced? Yeah. Well, also I know also, my, my tons parents of are people. Divorced. Yes, I know tons of people whose parents are divorced who are not kidnappers and drug dealers. Oh, we have so to talk a, about this. I mean, we only have a few minutes left, but we really need to talk about this before we go. Tell our reader or our we don't have readers here. We do on thearcmag.com, which you should check out. Um. 
tell our listeners about is it philip roth's american pastoral oh yeah Mm -hmm. and and why this is a great work of american literary fiction and why people should read it and how it ties into this conversation yeah super quick summary just bare bones um and this isn't giving anything away but um it's about a beautiful beautiful man whose nickname is the swede because he's like so blonde and whatever and his beauty pageant wife and they live a pretty normal life they have a daughter and you kind of the book kind of like retroactively goes through their life as a family but the kind of catalyst for the story is that she blows up a post office he being the daughter sorry pronouns uh the daughter blows, uh, blows up a post office kind of in protest of the vietnam war um and gets involved in this kind of radical militant terrorist organization i mean it is a terrorist organization um and it kind of traces the father kind of remember trying to remember everything he ever did with his daughter Mm -hmm. And, and why why is he doing that because he's trying to find the point he in his own mind he's trying to find the point where she became this person mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and so the a really poignant scene is like they're driving home from the beach and she's like 10 or, or 11 or something and she's like i want to kiss you and he was like okay sure and like she kisses him on the mouth and he realized as he's reflecting on it it's like oh she's not really that little anymore mm-hmm. and did that do something to her sexually like, did i do mm-hmm. something wrong like mm-hmm. Is was that it? And there's just it's just filled with these moments of like, was it my wife's fault? Was it my fault? Was it our culture's fault? And just it ultimately, in my opinion, kind of leaves you with the thought of like trying to find the motive, trying to find the motivations for your own actions is incredibly difficult. Yeah. Okay. Trying to do that for another person, even someone you spent the first. 18 years of their life with on a daily basis basically is even more impossible Mm -hmm. and trying to do that on someone who's like hillary clinton for example or donald trump or any like celebrity who we i will probably never meet like how could you ever really get to their motivations and that's not to say that we can't have good guesses Mm -hmm. Um, and so what is your takeaway of the philosophical worldview of American pastoral. Like if you had to categorize the author's philosophical view of agency mm-hmm. in general, what would you, what would you label it? Mm-hmm. If anything, maybe, maybe it's hard. Maybe it's indeterminate. I would say it's some form of indeterminism. And I would also say that libertarian thought in any form, if, if, the reductionary qualities of determinism are its biggest weakness. The mysterious qualities of libertarianism are its biggest weakness. Oh yeah. The, it's, it's lack yeah. of explanatory power. Yeah. And so I would just, say either extreme when you get into very deterministic systems of thought about choice and agency, or if you go super libertarian, you start to, and this is why we try to strike a balance on this podcast, you start to lose any kind of real explanatory power. Because if I say to someone, well, you know, OJ, you know, if he did kill his wife, which he did, um, mm-hmm. 
if he did, it's not really his fault because here's all these things. Like I'm, I'm explaining away his agency in a way that yes, it explains it in a manner like, Oh yeah. And the way he was raised and he thought his father was gay and there's all these things and he was disrespected and he was a celebrity and everybody treated him this way. I am giving you a list of reasons and determine determining factors as to why he killed his wife, but I'm not actually, it actually makes the world a less meaningful place and therefore the explanatory power is seeped away from it. But on the mm-hmm. on the flip side, when you say we have a radical, I would say chaotic libertarian freedom, and you can kind of go to the uh, Jeff Goldblum character in Jurassic Park for this, explanatory power is lost in that case because everything's a mystery and it, we're all just kind of living in this chaos that we think has the semblance of organization, but not really. So mm-hmm. on either extreme, you have a loss of meaning for two different reasons. On one extreme, the meaning gets seeped out of it because meaning ceases to exist altogether. That's determinism. And on the other extreme, meaning is almost an unknowable, mysterious thing that you'll never actually have access to anyway. So for me, I think most people are somewhere in between those two extremes because we do believe that there is meaning in the universe. Yeah. And I, I think when I said mystery as well, I meant in terms of how we actually make free choices yeah. isn't something we can really explain still to this day. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's saying like in a very, I would say it's too complex. Yeah. It's too complex. It might be, it also, it like everything in these discussions is connected with so many other beliefs. Like if you believe if you're a dualist of any type, then it's very easy to be like, well, the, the will emerges from, the mind or the spirit or the soul. And if you're a whatever, there's other, it's just, there's so many functions to it, but the book, I think maybe it's unfair to try to get a philosophical doctrine out of it because I, I think it's purpose. It's exercise was to show you that this is irreducible. This is not something, no matter how good of a psychoanalyst you are, no matter how good of a sociologist, no matter how good of a ethicist, or anything, you can't really trace the genesis of choice. And it's that person's. And so the daughter's choice to do that ultimately was still her choice. And like, no matter, even if you could find out why, it wouldn't change the fact that she acted on it. Mm-hmm. So there's... And I would say like, for me as an ethicist, um, I'm a Bonhoeffer scholar. So Bonhoeffer talks a lot about community. I think most Mm -hmm. choices you have to contextualize within communities. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, it's a, it's a good, it's a good thing for someone to hide a Jew from the Nazis during the Holocaust. And it's a bad thing for someone to out that Jew and have them sent to a concentration camp. But those aren't decisions made by individuals in a vacuum. Those are choices made in Mm -hmm. really messy, historical, concrete, contextual, communal situations where there are certain pressures and relational kind of tugging that goes on mm-hmm. and so there there is like in american pastoral i haven't read the book and i really want to i would love to get back to reading fiction after i'm done with this dissertation um and that's that book is high on my list but for me it's like yeah even if that girl did make the decision to blow up the post office it doesn't mean that nothing that no one else is is partially responsible mm-hmm. and i and i i think he would say that too I, I don't think he's saying it's really up to the person, whatever. Mm-hmm. I think he's saying trying to really finely 
almost like scientifically from like a empirical historical point of view, like really try to pinpoint this mm-hmm. is very dangerous and it will drive you crazy, you know? And it's, it's more also, it's a discussion of parenthood and just being like, and in a lot of ways you are responsible. And like the Swede and his wife did make mistakes and they did do things that good parents don't do, but every parent does that. So it's like, it's, it's like most art, it doesn't answer a question. It just kind of really communicates one of those truths of why people do things is really difficult to figure out. So just, you know. I think that's a good place to leave it. Why people do things is really hard to figure out mm-hmm. um, as we continue along this amazing election season. Why people vote for Donald Trump is beyond me. But hey, I don't know the mysteries of people's you know, cognition and how they know things and how they process things. So must, must be the trone has them in the zone. That's all the time we have for today. This has been Ryan Huber. And Nick. And you'll hear from us next week. So, bye. Bye.